Production. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 19th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're at the home of Debbie and Pastor Mark Downey, and we appreciate their fellowship. We just spent a um, probably a little over a week at the home of Clifton Emmerheiser and had some excellent fellowship with a bunch of absolutely wonderful Christian identity brethren over a three-day period. I, I, I don't... <laughs> I don't think we'll have anything like that for a while again, and we're blessed by it. Tonight we'll be presenting the fourth part of our series, presenting Caius Fabricius's Positive Christianity in the Third Reich. Over the first three parts of the series, we presented the first half of Fabricius's booklet, which was titled the religious policy of national socialism. In that portion of his work, Fabricius explained the things which national socialism had rejected, which were liberalism, attacks on Christianity, and any of the humanist, naturalist, or pagan substitutes for religion, meaning Christian religion. Then Fabricius explained the things which national, which national socialism affirmed, which were positive Christianity and, for better or worse, the evangelical and Roman Catholic church organizations of Germany as they had existed traditionally. The second half of Fabricius's booklet is titled the Christian Foundations of National Socialism. And it discusses and explains national socialist ideas of kinship with God, the relationship of God and folk, the practice of neighborly love, and national corruption and redemption. In the last section of this booklet, Fabricius discusses the distinction between how National Socialists saw the role of the Führer within the German Christian concept of Christ. While the National Socialists never attempted to deify their Führer or elevate him to the position of the Redeemer of men, they did indeed see him as a type for Christ which is not new to the history of our race or to biblical history itself, to the biblical narrative. The leader of a nation as a type for Christ is found in the accounts of Moses, Joshua, and King David. We will discuss this at greater length in the final parts of the series. In the most recent portion of our presentation of this work, we have seen Caius Fabricius describe positive Christianity as a practical Christianity, which he also considered to be 
the real thing, Christianity in practice and not in word. We would like once we would like once again to explain something which all identity Christians should certainly already understand, and that is the fact that real Christianity is not practiced in a church. However, for many centuries, and especially before books were commonly attainable, a church was the only place which the greater portion of the people could go to to obtain instruction in Christian morals. While assembly meetings among Christians are certainly beneficial today with books and and enhanced communications, they're not as crucial as they were to Christians of the Middle Ages. It is the dissemination of Christian morals for which Hitler felt the churches were a necessary component of German life. That is why, as we have quoted before, Hitler had said in Volume 1, Chapter 12 of Mein Kampf, speaking of the National Socialist Movement, that it looks upon the two religious denominations as equally valuable mainstays for the existence of our people, and therefore it makes war on all those parties which would degrade this foundation on which the religious and moral stability of our people is based to an instrument in the service of the party interests. There were, of course, other aspects of the policies of the the denominational churches which were very uh, disagreeable to the National Socialists. But those aspects should also be disagreeable to all identity Christians, as those aspects, which include such things as foreign missions to racial aliens, do not represent what we know to be biblical Christianity. However, once the distinctions between true biblical Christianity and what we, as identity Christians, may call denominational churchianity are realized, it can indeed be determined that the positive Christianity of National Socialism was an earnest endeavor to practice, as Fabricius called it, the real thing. We have already illustrated in several ways how National Socialism put real Christianity into practice. And now Caius Fabricius will explain that from his own perspective in this second part of his booklet, The Christian Foundations of National Socialism. And of course, we have plenty of our own comments. Fabricius begins by saying, he who lives on the heights of human life reaches up to the superhuman and so possesses real religion. For religion is surrender to the supernatural, but he who lives in the plains of human life is remote from the superhuman and consequently has no real religion. Or if he declares what is purely human to be the supreme being, then his is a false religion and he himself 
practices idolatry. Idolatry, the creation of your own God in your own mind. Or sometimes in wood and stone. The the references to the superhuman here are not to be confused with the naturalist theories of the ubermensch promoted by quacks like Frederick Nietzsche. Rather, to the Christian, the superhuman is a reference to the divinity with which man may have a partnership only on the terms of the divinity. Adolf Hitler, in Mein Kampf and in his speeches, made many references to divine providence, to the divine will, and he expressed the knowledge that both he himself, as well as the German people and the other nations of the world, were all subject to that divine will. In chapter 4 of Mein Kampf, in volume 1, in a discussion of man's interference with certain aspects of nature, he equated the operation of nature to the divine will, thereby subjecting nature to God where Nietzsche sought to replace the concept of God with nature, thinking that man could somehow evolve into being his own God. Fabricius goes on to say, a true leader of the people, one occupying the highest position of all, and at any moment prepared to pronounce momentous decisions, undertaking thereby responsibility for millions of his followers, knows he is united with the superhuman and bends his will to God. And a people that has experienced a change of faith, having awakened from weakness, sickness, and feverish dreams to a new health and strength, experiences in its resurgence not only the highest of human things, but it seals the power of the superhuman, the power of the divinity. And also each single insignificant human being carrying within him what is noble in man rises in some great decisive crisis of his life above the merely human and in touching thus the fringe of the superhuman becomes reverent and devout. But human worms crawling along the ground pagans and white nationalists, I presume, but human worms crawling along the ground know nothing except what is human and less than human and do not rise to what is truly divine, but are sufficient unto themselves and even confuse themselves with what is divine. This, too, is a rebuke of Nietzsche's naturalism on the part of Fabricius, and the ridiculous idea that man can somehow become his own God. But at the same time, it is very much in line with the righteous attitude of the kings of ancient Israel, who with all certainty esteemed that they were sitting in the place of God so long as they ruled over the people of God, and that therefore, because they were sitting in the place of God, that they were compelled to rule over the people by the will of God, subjecting themselves to God. 
in a speech at the Lowenbrau Keller in November of 1940. Hitler said of the war which had just begun with the English, which he wholeheartedly tried to avoid, that I am convinced that providence has led me up to this point and has held all trials at a distance so that I could wage this battle for the German folk. Using the term translated as providence, Hitler used the same language in reference to God that so many Christian statesmen had used before him. Fabricius goes on to say, because of this, it is a matter of course that the Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, occupying the high position he does, feels and has expressed in many a notable speech that he is under the providence of Almighty God and is responsible to the great guide of the destinies of nations. Neither are we surprised when he sometimes closes an address with a prayer. Once he even concluded a great speech on May 1st, 1933, with the words, We will not leave except thou bless us. We will not leave thee except thou bless us. And again, it is a matter of course that National Socialism is, on the whole, to those who gaze into its depths, the experience of some immense change of destiny bestowed by God. Here we have proof of the indissoluble connection between the development of the power of our national uprising and a deep reverend submission to God. To understand the truth of these words, one must understand the decadence of the Weimar years and the immorality and vice in which all of German life was consumed from the time of the First World War and the defeat from the time of the end of the First World War and the defeat of the Kaiser. In the Weimar Republic, homosexuality among males and females was openly and publicly promoted. It was promoted in posters and billboards on the open streets. Prostitution was commonplace. Even the prostitution involving male and female children. People were forced into prostitution to earn their daily bread, and only the Jew had money to buy the prostitutes. Prostitution was commonplace, Syphilis was epidemic. Narcotics and pornography were advertised openly. Germany was a Jewish overseen cesspool. It was a Jewish supervised cesspool for all those years until the National Socialists came to power. There were few moral boundaries, and the Jews were gleeful, having their pick of the flower of Germany. Bolshevism was an ever-looming threat. And in hindsight, it is clear that if Germany were to break free of the Jewish control which promoted all of these conditions, that war was inevitable. Today, all of Christendom is in an even worse situation. To understand that the moral reformation of the German people under the National Socialists on a Christian basis one must understand the decadence of the Weimar Republic. 
Fabricius continues, or we will continue with Fabricius. National socialistic piety does not consist in man's deification of himself or in his creation of new imaginary idols. In a really great epoch, such aberrations make no appeal to men's minds. Rather, does he look to the Lord of the world and to the God of all nations of the earth, whom his forefathers have already served in the usages of congregational life as well as in the forms of religion and divine worship, all of which from time immemorial have been bound up in the inner life of the German people, that is to say, in the forms of the Christian religion. Consequently, here then is to be found the necessary interconnection between the Christian religion and the national socialistic attitude. It is therefore agreed that generally speaking, the national socialistic spirit is closely connected with the powers of the Christian life. But what is applicable in general is no less true of the individual aspects and motives of the Christian life. And now we shall try to visualize those living forces in detail. We shall therefore treat of God's children and kinship with God and dominion over the world, love for one's neighbor, sin, redemption, and the Redeemer, meaning Christ. We shall realize how the different powers of the Christian spirit find their fulfillment in the life of the German people and in the heroic struggle of the moment in particular. At the same time, however, we shall keep in view those attempts at religion offered to the German people today under the name of neo-paganism. And we shall ask ourselves if they possess any value as sources of health and strength for a nation fighting for its very existence. Under the National Socialists, the German people had experienced a spiritual and national revival of incredible proportions. The nation literally pulled itself from out of the pits of hell and into an age of moral, economic, and political reformation whereby all of the immorality, decadence, and abject poverty which was evident among the people during the Weimar years had virtually disappeared and was replaced with a healthy sense of national unity and an edifying spirit of civic volunteerism. Now, as Fabricius writes this, it is 1935, and he is writing from the perspective of a witness to this great national revival. And he understood that it was made possible because the new German government had urged the German people to repentance and, to a, and a return to Christian morality, while at the same time, that government had fostered the economic conditions which would encourage the people to join with it in that same course. You cannot turn someone from prostitution without offering a viable economic alternative. You cannot turn someone from depravity 
without offering a viable reason why, the moral life offers much greater rewards. The National Socialist Program was able was able to to do all of this in a few short years. Ever since their defeat, ever since 1945, the entire West has slowly sunk into the same decadence and immorality from which Adolf Hitler had, once upon a time, successfully delivered the German people. Which of the Western governments was the better Christian government? Here we we will continue with the first part of this portion of Fabricius' booklet, which is entitled Kinship with God. And the first section of Kinship with God is subtitled Kinship with God and Dominion over the World. And Fabricius says, all Christians unite in the use of the Lord's Prayer addressing God as children do their father. The more genuine their Christianity is, the more do they feel that what they pray is the truth. All real Christians Submit to the Lord of the world and to the God of all the nations of the earth, just as children are submissive to their father. They experience in their childlike surrender how the superhuman spirit descends and receives them into his divine life so that they are filled with his spirit. The state of being God's children comprises many special motives. In it, the Christian life is childlike joy sublime felicity of the peace of God and a happy refuge for the human mind in the divine spirit. And this in its turn results in the childlike surrender of the human will in voluntary obedience to the divine will, a striving in the same direction as God is working out his purpose, the desire to perform what is divine, to be perfect as the Father is perfect. This gives rise to a child life trust in God, to the conviction that the Father in the world surrounding us directs everything in accordance with his divine will, just as he directs the happenings of our own lives, that even the sufferings and unpleasantness of which the word is full are there for the purpose of serving the honor of God. This frame of mind, however, is accompanied by a childlike humility, That is to say, life in unison with the Father is lived within the narrow compass of the world, and the restriction of the world with all its hazards and uncertainties, difficulties, and obscurations is recognized as such and is affirmed as the framework, as the husk, as the shape in which God realizes the salvation of his children. All these felicity, obedience, trust, humility, when organically forged together in one uniform experience, make up the substance of this kinship with God. In this childlike surrender to the Lord of the world, man, from a height which he otherwise would never have reached, 
experiences an inner release. The great security of the human spirit enfolded in the superhuman divine spirit allows the sons of men to participate in the exaltation of God beyond the narrowness of the world. In the midst of this world, man has gained, has inwardly gained superiority over the world. Nothing that is of this earth has power to enslave him, and he lives exalted above all things. But in the Christian religion, this does not mean fleeing the world or denying it. Closeness to God is not experienced remote from the world and away from things connected with the world. From the height to which man is ascended as a child of God, he influences the bustle and hurry of the world. He regards all his worldly goods as divine gifts. He lives and works in this world to the honor of God. And to him, service in the world is divine service. True divine service in the narrowest sense of the word is and remains the direct surrender of the soul to the divine reality of of life. But divine service in the widest sense of the word is activity in all the spheres of this earthly life. Service in human society, search for truth, cultivation of the beautiful and all physical work. And we should be reminded from the earlier portions of these presentations that we have already seen Adolf Hitler define work not as that which a man does for his own gain only, but as that which a man does in order that he may benefit his entire community. And we cited that from Mein Kampf, Volume 1, Chapter 11. Fabricius continues. With the domination of the Christian personality over the world, there is a further connection, namely this, that in a life consciously placed under the direction of the divine spirit, every value and every activity is arranged in its proper order. When man submits unconditionally to the rule of the superhuman spirit, then the consequences for his whole life, including all worldly connections, are that the spirit controls the flesh in everything. The values determining human life from the sacred through the good the true and the beautiful, down to the useful, appear to grade themselves naturally in that the inner life unconditionally takes the highest place, the sensual, the physically sensual, the fleshly, the physically sensual, the lowest place, and that everywhere the sensual is kept in control by the spirit and reduced to its right measure. This attitude preserves man forthwith, from every kind of excess in the sensual life. Indeed, from every re-evaluation of all values, a, a term commonly used by the Jewish enemies of God, whereby the Christian grading of values professed by National Socialism is reversed. In this sense, our program declares we combat the Jewish materialistic spirit within and without us among us, within us, and outside, corresponding to this well-known principle to abolish the thraldom of interest, 
meaning usury, included in another part of the program. This demand fits perfectly into the grading of values which conforms to the Christian attitude of mind. Indeed, we are reminded of the words of the New Testament, you cannot serve God and mammon, which applied to the situation under discussion means the domination of the goods of this world, including money and borrowed capital, ceases for those who are impelled by the divine spirit and consequently look upon material life not as the highest, but as the lowest sphere of life. Submission to the spirit. Christian, true Christian submission to the spirit is keeping the commandments of God, laws which are necessary for the organization of a moral and stable society. Yet, while it is not explicit in the Ten Commandments, usury is theft, and the Christian God detests usury. We read, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 18, from verse 8, that he that has not given forth upon usury, neither has taken any increase, that has withdrawn his hand from iniquity, has executed true judgment between man and man. He has walked in my statutes and has kept my judgments to deal truly. He is just. He shall surely live, saith Yahweh God. So we see that God counts as righteous the man who is not given forth upon usury, the man who has not taken any increase from his fellows. Then we read a little further on in that same chapter, in verse 13, he who has given forth upon usury and has taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. It is evil to loan anything at usury in the eyes of the God of the Bible. Here it is evident that only a fool would believe the Jewish lie, which would claim that the Bible is a Jewish book. The greatest of Christian men also detested usury. Men such as Martin Luther, and Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas once wrote to Margaret, the Duchess of Flanders, professing that the Jews should not be allowed to keep anything which they had gained through usury, and instructing her that they should therefore be stripped of all their property. We'll continue with Fabricius. Free thinkers and the advocates of free religious movements, however, who look upon the individual or the community, mankind or the people as the supreme being, and in deifying these, refuse to recognize surrender to a superhuman spirit, possess no ultimate standard for the grading of values. Thus, great divergency is noticeable in the philosophical systems and trends of thought from the 18th to the 20th century in their determining of what is the highest value. Humanitarians there are, 
who would glorify the social life of mankind as such. Intelligentsia, who consider thought to be the culmination of human life. Aesthetes, who regard art as the sublime in life. And there are also very doubtful revaluations, such as the practical materialism of the Marxists or the naturalism of Nietzsche, all being philosophies of life that may either be included in the Jewish materialistic spirit rejected by our program or else are dangerously near to it. For the more mankind and the physical phenomena of nature surrounding us are regarded as divine, the more quickly does the spirit of naturalism and materialism gain ground, and the more rapidly does the importance of spiritual values vanish, and the sensual spreads like rank growth, and the animal in man clamors for its rights. Gay marriage. In other words, the deification of mankind quickly degenerates into a deification of subhuman culture, I'm sorry, subhuman nature, as has been proved by numerous instances where Marxism holds sway. But it is also to be found in other trends of thought as well. And of course, Fabricius didn't mention gay marriage, but I had to interject that as the perfect example of what he was talking about. We have already seen when we presented part two of this series that Nietzsche's naturalism was not only dangerously close to Jewish materialism, but it was in practical agreement with the same philosophies which many Jewish so-called scholars and writers have developed from the Talmud. Nietzsche himself had expressed satisfaction when he found that many of his own ideas had already been expressed by the Jewish writer Baruch Spinoza the idea that man can somehow become his own god, as well as the concept of moral relativism and those two ideas necessitate, one necessitates the other. If man is his own god, man can create his own morals and change them as he sees fit. The idea that man can somehow become his own god, as well as the concept of moral relativism, are both found in the Jewish Talmud and other writings of the Jews. And for several hundred years, those ideas had been disseminated throughout Western society in one way or another under the cloak of so-called secular humanism. Both ideas are incorporated into the philosophy of Nietzsche, who may as well have been a Jew rather than a true German. Nietzsche's naturalist ideas promote that same materialism which the Jews have always promoted. The fourth protocol in the famous Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion expressed the desire to have materialism replace the Christian religion. The advancement of Nietzsche is equivalent to the promotion of the objectives of the Jews. There's no difference. If you are a follower and espouser of the philosophies of Nietzsche, you may as well be a Jew. To continue with Fabricius, a word now remains to be said concerning Christian character in relation to the heroism demanded in Germany of every loyal German 
in these days of national resurgence. The standpoint to be expressed is perfectly clear. The knowledge of having dominion over the world, which is part of the Christian faith, creates strong characters that cannot be shaken. It gives men a feeling of great stability in the vicissitudes of life, a steady purpose in all the activities of this world, and unconditional reliability and fidelity in all the changes of time, and untiring diligence in everything that has to be accomplished. And here Fabricius demonstrates an understanding, and it's very clear in his writing, that the Old Testament is every bit a part of the Christian faith as the New Testament. The warnings forbidding usury are only found in the Old Testament. The explicit commission of the Adamic man to an office of dominion over the creation of God is also only found in the Old Testament. Fabricius counts those Old Testament precepts as being Christian. And that, even though we disagree with Fabricius's theology in other areas, which we shall discuss, his understanding of the Old Testament being Christian is certainly the identity Christian understanding and the proper understanding. To continue with Fabricius, when the nucleus of a nation is composed of men of this stamp, or when a spirit such as this dominates a people, a wonderful source of strength thus exists for them. For men of this kind guarantee invincible calm, endurance, equability, and steadfastness of soul in the spirit of the nation. This spirit can, moreover, preserve the nation from inner disintegration and dissolution and it can guide it from an era of destruction into an age of reconstruction, of unity and solidarity. Consequently, the permanent recovery of our German folk also comes from within. That is to say, from the sources of holy life dwelling in the depths of the soul by virtue of kinship with God, and precisely in a heroic fight to be won before our folk can hope to recover from its collapse, there can be no better source of strength than the life-giving streams that flow from the depths of the Godhead into the soul of the nation open to receive them. For the consciousness of having dominion over the world gives God's children strength to overcome all difficulties, to become indomitable fighters, to ward off every danger in a cheerful spirit, to break down all obstacles boldly and courageously and form a brave knighthood scorning death and the devil. There are, however, free thinkers and supporters of free religions, including the representatives of a new religion that claims to conform to the German type, who now come forward and preach a philosophy at variance with what has just been said about the relations between Christian sentiments and human development of strength. In such circles, whether they represent liberal or social views or uphold national or international sentiments, 
The conviction is widespread that to man, man is the supreme being, and besides him, only nature exists. And it is irrational to believe in the superhuman living God, just as it is irrational in daily life to put one's trust in the supreme power of a divine being. And all these things come from the Jews. A religion such as Christians profess with its teaching on humility, makes man delight in slavery of mind, makes him cowardly and obsequious, and prevents the manly development of his powers. As a contrast to this, they call upon man to develop by himself and boldly defy all such powers from above that seek to subdue him. And in accordance with one's private sentiments, this standpoint is proclaimed as a form of godlessness or as a new substitute for religion, according as there is a lack of religious feeling or an enthusiastic reverence for man and nature. As we have already shown, man can develop his human powers more easily when they are rooted in the superhuman, and he is thus accustomed to deal with things of this life from above as it were, and not from below. And when, in Christian faith, humility finds a place which is the affirmation of the limits of human nature, this does not mean it is a contrast to heroism. Rather, does it belong to the substance of the really true heroic spirit. For the real hero, who has to assert himself in danger and distress, with all the high values he defends, knows better than anyone else the limitations of his powers. The profound thoughts contained in the stories of Achilles' heel and Siegfried's vulnerable spot express this unequivocally. And the qualities of the real hero must include modesty, one of the most important of all virtues. Judged by moral standards, the man who praises his own heroic deeds is not highly respected. Rather, is it a proof of noblest heroism when he refrains from mentioning his victorious deeds, or at the most, speaks of them in all modesty as but the fulfillment of his duty. Well, may the real hero bend his will to God, who is the source of his strength and sets the limits to his actions. In this way, it is impossible to look upon humility as an obstacle to heroic sentiments. Siegfried's vulnerable spot. Siegfried was the Rhenish, meaning from the Rhineland, the Rhenish prince and the hero of the story of the Nibelungen lead before he's slain because he's invincible except in one spot on his back where if he was stabbed there he would die and it killed him to the followers of nietzsche as well as to the humanist jews morality is relative therefore in their perverted worldview Man determines for himself at any given time what is moral and what is not moral. 
followers of Nietzsche promote the idea that men should not impose their own morality on others, which allows Jews to be Satan everywhere they go, which is similar to the basis of what we may call libertarianism, the philosophy of Nietzsche, just like libertarianism, makes the world safe for Jews, perverts, homosexuals, and every other vile creature you could imagine. Under such a system, man loses control over his environment and has no dominion whatsoever over the world. In reality, men could never cooperate with one another and work together towards a common goal in a world where everyone's morals are different. Nietzsche and his philosophy are unworkable in reality. Contrarily, Christian humility is the submission of man to God and the understanding that morals are concrete and that morals emanate from God. When all men agree in Christ, they share the same morals, and the way is paved by which they may cooperate with one another for the building of the nation and the common good of the folk. The followers of Nietzsche claim that the Ubermensch has surrendered his ego, but the ego of the Ubermensch is surrendered to evil since there is no will to enforce a common justice among men. Nietzsche is a failure. The Christian ideal is to surrender the ego to God and not to vanity. The Christian ideal in surrendering the ego to God means that God is supreme and all men seek to uphold a morality whereby true justice becomes the breath of life for the nation. Christianity is the foundation in bedrock. Nietzsche is a foundation in the Jewish Talmud, and it's garbage. Here we shall commence with part two of Fabricius's discussion of kinship with God, which is subtitled God and Folk. We must now investigate the question as to how the Christian's belief in God harmonizes with belief in the German folk, one of the basic principles of the national resurgence. There are certain people, those to whom the Führer alludes as men in bearskins. I hope some pagans are listening who would appear desirous of establishing a new Germanic folk religion. Our standpoint with regard to this matter is as follows. Since in religion man rises to the superhuman, which means he advances beyond human limitations and communes with the power recognized by him to be the ruler of the world, so is the horizon of the world which man concedes and experiencing God of great vastness at every stage of religion. It is always identical with the end of the world known to him. Is his clan his world? Then the spirits of his clan are to him supreme beings. 
are the bounds of the world to him, the boundaries of his folk, then the deities or the one deity of his folk are to him absolutely the supreme Godhead. Should his vision extend beyond the boundaries of his own nation to the nations surrounding his, even to the nations of the earth, then the many deities of the other nations form together the conception of the divine or the one Godhead ruling over all is worshipped as the supreme being. We have to criticize Fabricius just a little here, but he gets into this further in the next section of this booklet, and we will criticize him more at that time. The Hebrew Bible and the Christian religion incorporate multiple facets of these various ideas. But Fabricius, being a universalist, seems to miss this because he was not trained in the proper racial understanding of Scripture. Identity Christians understand that the God of the Bible is also the patriarch of our family and that all white families are related, representing the Adamic race of Scripture, where non-whites are excluded by Scripture. We understand when we get identified at Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10 that the Bible is exclusively a book for the white race. And all of the nations in Europe can be seen to have descended from the nations of Genesis chapter 10. Fabricius, not understanding Old Testament history in the light of archaeology and ancient history, was a universalist who took it for granted that all the races of the world were included in the biblical narrative, and they certainly are not included. Only the white race, as we know today, and the white race in its entirety is included in the biblical narrative to the exclusion of the other races. Therefore, the Hebrew Bible, from its beginning, is a story about our white family. And the founders of that family are venerated, and the creator of that family is our God and our Father. To continue with Fabricius, should religion, however, notwithstanding the widened horizon, confine itself to a limited sphere on the earth, it is but a survival of past ages. Or, if such limits are artificially constructed, it is a reversion to an ancient stage in the history of mankind, having nothing to do with a higher culture or even with higher religion. Religions of this kind found on paper may well serve to elevate the mind in small literary circles, but in the spiritual life of a great nation, they are but curious phenomena, and one cannot expect them to become a source of strength for a whole nation, least of all for one that would work its way up from the depths of bitter need to a new life. We, National Socialists, assuredly think with reverence of the religion of our forefathers, we reject, however, all attempts to resuscitate 
the dim shapes of prehistoric days or to create a new folk religion by adopting a modern deification of man and nature and limiting it to our own folk and land. For we take our stand with our Fuhrer upon the basis of positive Christianity. These people that um, pick up these old Germanic poems and they realize that those old Germanic poems, the Poetic Edda, the Nibelungen Lied, the Voluspa, Beowulf, they realize that these Germanic poems, while they have um, expressions of certain pagan worldviews, do not form a complete religious system. Neo-pagans turn to the brown squat monsters, the camel niggers in India, the elephant dung niggers, and they imagine that the Hindu religion, since it produced the Vedas, and since perhaps bearers of the Hindu religion or bearers of elements of what is known as Hinduism now, bearers of it had elements of Hinduism and were certainly white people at an early time, they imagined that the Hinduism of today belongs to our race. So they piece together pieces of this Hindu religion, which they cannot ascertain with any certainty, originated in its entirety from our race. But they take it anyway, and they try to create a religion for the Germanic people by piecing together this Hinduism with the Vedas, with this Germanic poetry. And what they end up with is a bunch of New Age humanist hogwash. That's exactly what they end up with. It's a meaningless religion which is grafted together from diverse systems of Germanic paganism, camel nigger paganism, and the philosophy of Nietzsche. where man becomes his own God, which is straight out of the pages of the Jewish Talmud, and they're too stupid to realize it. The philosophy of Nietzsche is really rooted in Judaism. The Germanic literature found in Europe is really just a bunch of pagan stories, some of which have a limited moral value, and others of which are only about lasciviousness, feasting, and drunkenness and have no moral value whatsoever. They have a negative moral value. Hinduism and the Vedas may have had their origin with whites, but we cannot say and we cannot tell if they've been untouched by the hearts and minds of the other races who have preserved them for the last two or 3,000 years. And in addition to that, there is absolutely no proof whatsoever that the Vedas of Hinduism are anywhere near as old as they are claimed to be. Some claims that they're as old as 1500 or even 3000 BC are based merely on 
wishful thinking. In reality, most of the Vedic literature is probably no older than 200 or 300 BC. While elements of it may be older, there is no provenance for those elements. There's no archaeological provenance supporting any truly ancient documentation which can enlighten us as to the origin of the Vedas. Without a historical setting, the value of the texts are greatly diminished. To continue with Fabricius, and we will disagree with parts of this when we make our own notes later on, Christianity is a world religion. It comprises and unites many peoples. It is predominant among the Indo-Germanic peoples of the earth who by reason of their culture and their politics rule the greater part of the world. And let me say that the concept of this word world was limited to the white Adamic world, the Greco-Roman and Near Eastern white world, both by the Bible and as late as the writings of Martin Luther. In part 12 of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lives, he used the term world to describe the world of Europe and nothing beyond that. Fabricius continues by saying, The God whom Christians worship is the God of the whole world and the God of all nations. But amongst the various nations in the world, the Christian religion, which in the gospel is represented as one only, has to a certain extent mingled with the characters of nations and consequently without any artificial means, but solely through the growth of history has absorbed in in many inward and outward things, the spirit of the people that adopted it, Greek, Roman, German, and English, and confronts us now a unity in multiformity and a multiformity in unity. And if Fabricius considered the world to mean the Greco-Roman and later Germanic and English world, well, he is a lot more accurate than today's theologians. Here in um, the end of this chapter, Fabricius provides a footnote and expects us to turn to some of his other books. I don't even know if these books are, are available, and if I had to guess, I would say they probably are not. But he expected us to turn to other books that he had written which explain his Christian, per, his Christian confession in much greater depth. And the titles of those books, just um, as a point of interest, are First, Ecumenical Handbook of the Churches of Christ, and it was translated into English in Berlin in 1927, and Second, Corpus Confessionum, and Third, Types of Religion. And that's an article in a dictionary titled Religion in History and the Present Day published in Tübingen. So they are some of his 
other publications where he expected us to find the details of his Christian confession. And he continues by saying, and so the German spirit has become fused with the spirit of the Christian religion at various stages, such as in the German mysticism of medieval days, then again in Luther and the Reformation, as well as in religious and secular movements of more modern times. All this in its rich fullness of historical happenings, but which we may not follow up here in detail, since we are not discussing past history, but are dealing with the living present. One fact, however, stands out clearly. We, as Germans of German type, are at the same time Christians, and as Christians are at the same time Germans of German type or race. Hence, to us, Christianity means no eradication of folk characteristics, but rather an experiencing of the supreme divine power behind the outward wrappings that go to make up our racial characteristics. And discussing the history of the Germanic people in relation to Christianity, let me simply say that the earliest of the Germanic people of the tribes who are typically considered Germanic, the earliest of those people to accept Christianity date to the third century AD to the time before the Romans themselves had accepted Christianity, and they are the Goths, or at least a great portion of the Goths, and the Alans. True Christianity is nationalist. Christianity forbids race mixing. Race mixing is called fornication in the New Testament. The denominational churches deny that definition, but the biblical context proves it without and beyond doubt. Jude, verse 7, 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. It's very clear. Revelation, chapter 2. It's very clear that fornication is race mixing and that race mixing is a form of fornication because fornication can also describe other sexually illicit acts. Race mixing is fornication in those scriptures I have cited. At Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Paul states that God had made of one all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. And he refers to Genesis chapter 10, where we see that originally all the nations listed, they were all originally, originally white nations. Maybe later in history, they mixed their race, such as the Ethiopians and the Egyptians, but they were originally white nations, which can be proven biblically and historically. If God determined the bounds of the nations, and if God forbade race mixing, then Christianity is indeed nationalist. It is also evident that God is a racist, because he is the creator of race. Christians should indeed preserve that creation 
or they are found rebelling against God. Adolf Hitler fully understood and professed that aspect of Christianity in Mein Kampf. The only reason why whites and white nationalists in particular are disenchanted with the biblical literature is because they have long been following the interpretations of the Jews who would remove them from their God. Removing whites from their Aryan God, Jews succeed in getting whites to follow after the Talmudic ideas of humanism and moral relativism. The big lie is that the Bible is a Jewish book. To return to Caius Fabricius, accordingly, therefore, our folk, too, has a place in our Christian faith. To us, God is no dim conception indifferent to the things of the world and its multiplicity, but the Father reveals himself to his children through the Holy Ghost who dwells in them in bountiful fullness of life. We belong to him and see the world in him and him in the world. We believe that nature and the nations of the world are his creation and under his fatherly care. This is the essence of our trust in God, and consequently, a most important factor in the lives of the children of God. In the divine ordering of the world, however, everything in nature, the smallest as well as the largest, all living things, every individual, every nation has its place and its meaning in all the characteristics peculiar to its being and vitality, which precludes any obliteration or denial of distinguishing features. But within this world, our German folk is a part of the Aryan race. German blood courses through our veins, and we live on German soil. We love this folk with all the surrender we are capable of, and we love precisely this people of ours today, raised as it has been from out of the depths of the direst need by an overwhelming act of divine providence. If we understood the rise of Germany from the, from the pits of hell in the Weimar era to the glory of the National Socialist era and how Germany did that by rejecting usury and instituting nationally the concept of brotherly love we must indeed recognize that, like Caius Fabricius did, as an act of divine providence, an example to us, and a lasting memorial to the English-speaking people of the world who destroyed that on behalf of the devil. And that's what we did. And Fabricius continues by saying, and in this great happening, we look upon the fact that the Führer, Adolf Hitler, has been given to us as a very special mark of God's mercy towards us. We shall never be weary of thanking God for this special ordering of our history in the great happenings of the world. But as National Socialists, who take their stand upon the basis of positive Christianity. We do not intend for a moment to deify 
the Fuhrer, the folk, the race, blood, or soil. When the expression eternal Germany is occasionally used, no idolatry is implied. For eternal in the language of the folk, particularly in expressing enthusiasm, simply means an indefinite time. Thus, no one practices idolatry in calling something eternal. Or is it idolatry when two lovers make vows of eternal fidelity? Or if two countries on the signing of the treaty shall henceforth remain, quote-unquote, undivided forever? Or if the mathematician reckons with the number infinite or with the concept of infinity? Neither is it idolatry to speak of sacred Germany. For to Christians living in the Holy Spirit of kinship with God, it is assuredly an indisputable truth that everything that is under the profession of protection of God and blessed by him is accordingly sacred. In the New Testament, the body is spoken of as the temple of the Holy Ghost and is therefore sacred. Luther also declared that secular work performed by believers to the glory of God, even if only the most ordinary and simplest of household duties, is sacred work. As a Christian people, we Germans have also learned in childlike trust to place everything under God's providence. We are even told in Luther's catechism to take clothes and shoes, food and drink, house and homestead, wife and child, fields, cattle, and all our goods straight from the Father's hand as gifts. For this reason, We take it for granted that our folk and country are guided and governed by divine providence. And when today our country has been visibly blessed by God, it is quite natural for Christian Germans to speak of sacred Germany without entertaining idolatrous thoughts of any kind whatsoever. There are, it is true, as remarked before, a few isolated groups of anti-Christian free thinkers and supporters of free religions who may use similar expressions in an idolatrous sense. They must not, however, be included among those who understand the full meaning of national socialism, but are to be classed with those upon whom we have frequently passed judgments as being advocates of free thought and free religion. National Socialist Germany was indeed sacred Germany, but simply not in the respect that most people hearing the term would imagine. As Paul had written in his Christian trials, of his own Christian trials, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, from verse 15, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one, we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other, the savor of life unto life. And then Paul asks rhetorically, and who is sufficient for these things, or who is fitting for these things? Paul also wrote in Romans chapter 8, as it is written, for thy sake, 
We are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. The Christian promise is that in the end, sacred Germany shall be vindicated and and rewarded for the stand which it had taken in Christ. To continue with Caius Fabricius, as we now in all reverence consider our folk to be under God's protection, but only as one nation amongst many, and under the protection of God who rules all nations and the whole world, the question in concluding arises as to whether this faith does not weaken our strength for our earthly tasks and the development of our folk in particular. The answer is that the strength of a nation is strengthened most of all when its soul constantly ascends to the exalted heights of the Godhead, far beyond itself, above all nations and all things, to where God is. And on its returning from this flight, it descends to the world, to the nations, and to itself, imbued with a new strength and with new love. Assuredly, it is fitting for a nation to remember itself, its dignity and honor. But this national attitude draws its final support and inner strength again and again from the depths of the truly divine. A supranational religion, therefore, cannot be considered as weakening, but must rather be regarded as the source of a nation's strength. A significant historical instance of this may be given here. Simultaneously with England's development into the greatest empire of the world, a great religious revival developed about the middle of the 18th century when tremendous national strength was displayed. This movement started by the Methodists was not actuated by national motives, but was purely supernational, having only one aim in view, that of spreading holiness over the land, or in other words, to instill godly strength into men's minds. This powerful religious movement was no obstacle to England's national development of strength. On the contrary, it has been said that with a piety making men calm and strong, Methodism preserved the English people from the disorders of the revolution similar to that connected with the free thought movement in France. Thus, the German folk, insofar as it is Christian, will not weaken the strength of the Third Reich, but the more Christian it is, the more will it, in its earnest piety, form the noblest and most vigorous kernel of the nation, when in years to come, Germany will have to maintain her position. Not like England, it is true, by developing into a world like, but in strengthening the place she has won in the Council of the Nations. Obviously, Germany had no intention of conquering the world. It ceded that position to the British. The greatest nations of the modern era were all formed on a Christian foundation. Those states of the recent centuries, which were anti-Christian, were all brutal and Jewish-led tyrannies. Yahweh willing. We shall return next Friday with part two of this second half of Fabricius's booklet, 
which is titled Love for One's Neighbor. There are two parts left to this series. Sunday afternoon, I will be speaking at the Fellowship of God's Covenant People in Union, Kentucky. The talk is titled Unity and Divisions. In reality, it's a little bit more than that. Tomorrow night, Pastor Mark Downey and I will discuss the folly and the curse of accepting the secular white nationalist attitudes enveloped in the phrase white genocide. It's not for us. It will be the first of a two-part presentation. The white nationalist pundits have all, David Duke, Don Black, that rabbit on the radio, the white nationalist pundits have all demoted themselves to the status of nigger. Praise Yahweh and good night. Thank you.